in the future, I imagine a world where, um, you know, instead of explicitly going and like building a PyTorch model or building a scikit-learn model or an XGBoost model or any of that, like instead of maintaining that process, maintaining versions of those models and outputs of those models and everything, you'll just connect an AI to your data wherever it is and just start asking it questions. So you could just connect it and say like, hey, like, you know, what customers are most likely to churn in a year? Like what are, you know, what is the behavior in our network that is an anomaly and we should check out? And it'll just know how to build the right models, how to optimize that problem. Well, hello, and welcome back to the Generation AI podcast. We're wrapping up the year here at the podcast, and we're really happy to see us in our short tenure here in 23, uh, clock over uh, 300 streams uh, across 19 countries. So really excited about the momentum that this little AI podcast that could um, is growing into. And not to mention the phenomenal guests that we've had here on the show, um, some of the foremost thinkers in the space around generative AI. Uh, so we're just feeling this holiday season very blessed to see uh, that this, uh, these conversations are resonating so deeply with everyone. And on that same bent, um, I am here as I am every month with my faithful co-host, Ofer. Hi, everyone. Uh, glad to be here today, Sean. Yeah, Ofer, and I'm really excited to introduce you to our guest this week. Our guest this week is Lulpop creator and head of field engineering at Voltron Data, Jordan Volts. And Jordan has had a storied career at some of the most influential shakers in the data and ML space. This includes companies like Cloudera, Data Haiku, and Continual. And I had the pleasure of working directly with Jordan at Cloudera, rolling out a data science workbench product uh, based on bringing kind of common data data science frameworks to the world of Apache Hadoop. And uh, he was a great partner in rolling out a lot of the thought leadership that was needed to really connect the dots for people using those products. And as part of that, we spent a lot of time talking with you know leaders of data science teams, data engineering leaders, really all over the world. Um, and really got to know firsthand what they experience on a daily basis and some of the pains that they encounter as part of their daily work. On top of that, Jordan is a noted speaker uh, and instructor um, and really kind of hits home on the realities of bringing ML workloads uh, into production and what it takes to go from ideation and workbooks um, into something that's actually making uh, predictions um, and uh, working out there in the wild. He's a fantastic public speaker and a great storyteller, and that is why I am so excited to have him on the show today. So I want to welcome our guest today, Jordan Volts. Hi, guys, and th thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Jordan, so I just did a, a, a little intro and some, summated some of your background, but why don't you tell our podcast guests a little bit about your background and more specifically, what led you to creating an open source product? Yeah, great, great question. Um, so... You know, I've been in the software industry now for about 15 years. Um, I've had a variety of different roles. I started out as a software developer, um, you know, working at Epic, which does medical record technology. Um, and from there, you know, moved on to different companies, um, all, you know, more or less data related companies. So I've been doing kind of big data and machine learning 
uh, work for about the past decade or so. Um, and a lot of that has been like client facing too. So um, I'm not, you know, working in one company trying to solve exactly their problems. I've kind of seen across a lot of different vertical and company sizes, like what are problems they have, what are things that they're they're doing or trying. Um, and I, I actually think like that's that tends to be a very important distinction that people who are client facing, um, they get that kind of insight that if you're, you know, if you're just working at like Google for 20 years, you might not uh, kind of have the same perspective because you've only really seen like the problems that Google has, for example. Um, so I've been kind of grateful to have that experience and be, be able to see across a lot of different companies, a lot of different verticals, a lot of different uh, you know company sizes or like company stages. Uh, what are the things they struggle with, like particularly with data? Because I've always been kind of attached to uh, a data product uh, that they're trying to leverage. Um, so yeah, um, you know why why did I launch an open source project? That's a great question. And probably if you had talked to me a couple of years ago, I would never would have. I would say like I'm never going to do that. Like it sounds crazy. Um, but yeah, I recently launched this thing called uh, Lowpop, um, and you know the aim is really to provide software engineering a software engineering framework for building and maintaining machine learning projects. Um, and I think this is something that like throughout my career uh, working with different companies has kind of always stood out uh, as a gap that most companies seem to have, which is like they they haven't really adopted you know standards and best practices around the machine learning work that they're doing. It tends to be a lot more. Uh, like ad hoc and research or oriented. And so, you know, I think like me coming from like a software engineering background, when I work with clients, I often, you know, will deliver to them something that's like a really, you know, what I consider to be like a full-fledged pro project that like is not just a notebook, right? It's something that like is a well-designed piece of software that you can then run and you know, easily maintain. And a lot of the feedback I've gotten over the years is just like, oh, wow, like, this is actually a really smart way to actually like do the machine learning work. And I think like at a lot of companies, there don't seem to be people who are like thinking about it this way. It's kind of like, all right, we'll do the thing, build the model, get the results, and then the results is the final, uh, the final product. And I think it's actually that's not the correct way to think of it. It's like the entire process is the product. It's like if, if you can't, redo and like and if you can't like reuse what you're doing and you can't maintain that for years and years and years um you know like whether or not you've done it kind of doesn't doesn't matter right if it's not maintainable yeah and let's like actually just dig it straight into this this product that you've developed i know that really the aim is to bridge the gaps between um, people with data science backgrounds versus uh, really the software development best practices, these habits and frameworks that are they're pretty well cemented in the delivery of applications. What do you see as the important differences? Why, why is it uh, a little bit harder for maybe a data scientist to grok um, what's going to be needed for, for an end-to-end -end solution? Well, I think in general, data scientists are just not, they're not trained to have that mentality, right? Um, and I think, you know, at large, the data science field um, just hasn't really established those practices as 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 well as the software engineering field has, right? So you know, if you look at the software engineering field and you, you just care about software engineering, um, the things that you do from company to company are very similar. So like there's a set of, 
and you, you, it might not be exactly the same. There's different methodologies you can use to do software engineering, but you know the basic practices are, are the same from company to company. You're using a resource version control system. Um, you are going to write unit tests to test your code. You're going to like plug it into a CI/CD framework uh, to automate testing and integration of various components. Like everybody is doing this at every software engineering company or every software engineering team at like every company. Hopefully, you know there th that might not be across the board true but you know at any serious company their software engineering teams are doing this this isn't new either like um you know i was working as a software engineer around 2010 um we were doing this all back then you know 15 years ago and it wasn't new then either like these are things that had been established like in the 90s or, or early 2000s um so this wasn't new to the software engineering and like all this had been kind of uh, well-trodden out uh, in the 90s as you know, software engineering kind of became the thing that it is today. Um, data science is a lot newer field. Um, the workflows are not exactly the same as they are in the software engineering world. Um, so I think there's kind of been uh, this gap that has existed where you know, data science tends to be a lot more of an exploratory field, right? You, you get a problem statement, like oh, we got to we got to predict customer churn. We got to we got to get like a sales forecast or, you know, you have some kind of problem that gets thrown to you. You don't usually know what the result is going to be. You know, a lot of the times it may be that like we don't have good enough data to actually do this. So it doesn't even matter if I can get into production because it doesn't like I have a model that's that's crap. Um, but assuming you can like build something that's useful to the business. Um, it's usually like a fairly substantial effort between the like gathering the data, cleaning the data, building features, building the model, testing the model, getting like working out all the kinks. And then like by the time you get to like, how do we do this in production? I think most teams are like burnt out and they're like, all right, let's just throw it over the wall. We'll give it to the software engineering team. We'll say like, you go build this, you go run it. Um, so there's kind of this, this like throw it over the wall mentality that I, I've seen a lot, a lot of places. Um, you know, companies that are large enough and have enough resources, uh, you know, you'll see uh, ML engineers uh, are starting to, to enter the discussion at places like this. So, like, these are people who are kind of designed to fill in that gap where they understand the data science stuff that, you know, frankly, a lot of software people who are come up straight through software engineering, they don't have the data science skills. So, like, throwing over, like, models and vectors and stuff to them, like, they're, I don't know what these things are. Like, what am I supposed to do with these? Um, but, like, an ML engineer is kind of, like, designed to fill this void where, like, they speak both languages. They know the software engineering stuff. They know the machine lear learning stuff. They can kind of fit that role a little better. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at what's been happening in the startup world for the past decade, you know, it's more or less, like, people who have been doing machine learning engineering at some place, and then they spin off, and they're like, all right, well, here's a product that I think everybody needs, and then they go and they build a new thing. So it's like auto ML framework, uh, model evaluation framework, data evaluation framework, vector database, feature store. Um, so it's all these different things that like have kind of come together that you know fill in some gap. But I think what's missing is really like, well, we have all these different things now. Like, how do you actually like? How do you put it all all, all together? And in the in the launch blog for the project, um, the way that I phrased this was like you need to have an assembly line, right? You need to have something that uh, understands how to like put things together to build a final process. Um, and it doesn't mean that everything you build is going to be the same, right? I can use an assembly line. I can assemble different types of cars from an assembly line, but I need to have everybody agreeing that like this is the assembly line that we use. 
problems. If people don't agree on that, then we never actually build anything. So that is kind of how I see the project. It's really like providing a framework uh, to help to put a bunch of these things together and to make it easy for your teams uh, to maintain and manage these, these ML projects. So Jordan, yeah, this is really interesting. And in my experience managing teams, I certainly saw the need for that. Um, in the, in the sense of creating models and launching them to production and everything you said about uh, throwing over the wall, uh, truly, uh, uh, something that, that I've seen a lot. I wanted to ask you though, a little bit about this new world we are now in, which is this LLM generative AI world, because to some extent it changes the paradigm again, right? Because a lot of people don't develop their own LLM. They just use it. And so a model might become the model itself in inference mode with something else. How do you see that, that, that changing and how do you see teams adapt to this uh, in this new world? Yeah, that, that's a great point. Um, and LLMs, I do think, I think of it kind of less as a shift and more of an evolution of the field. Um, you know, and I think this is understated a lot in today's world where LLMs have a ton of hype. Um, but there's still a ton of classical machine learning that is being done and will probably continue to be done for many, many years ahead. Um, but yeah, the, the LLM experience, I think, um, you know, what's kind of revolution revolutionary about it um, is not the technology because the technology has kind of been around for years. I think people have been following the field like, all right, these are like transformers. These are things that people have been working on for a while. Um, what I think is, is really... Um, really interesting about it is the the user the end user experience um and if you look at the past decade and like people who have been working in machine learning like ourselves um a lot of things that come out are very kind of complicated difficult to use uh require like expert level skills to be able to use them right it's like oh you want to deploy thing you want to deploy your model well all you have to do is learn docker and kubernetes and terraform and you're ready to go and it's like okay well that actually seems uh to be a big hurdle for a lot of these data science people um and so this the whole like chat gpt gets you know however many hundred million users they got in over the year um, which is probably, they probably have more than that. But, uh, to me, the story is really like, if you make it easy to use and you give people like a really good API experience, then the sky is the limit. And that is something that I think was missed at a lot of these other things, which were essentially building like developer type tools, right? It's like, Hey, like you're an expert. Here's the thing that helps experts. Um, but like for businesses that doesn't really move the needle as much. So, you know, I think LLMs are kind of the first taste we've gotten as a, broad public of like how impactful uh, ML and AI can be to your average user. But you, we have to maintain, you have to think about ease of use and you have to think about like, what is your 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 API or the interface that, that users interact with? So I, I think we'll, we'll probably for the, for the short term beyond this dichotomy of like, we'll have LLM type stuff that's more like end user facing uh, and people starting to build more ML products that are like end user facing like that. Um, and then uh, still a lot of traditional kind of classical machine learning stuff that will, will require like data scientists and machine learning engineers, because we haven't yet gotten to the point where LLMs are doing the machine learning for you, which I think is a possibility <laughs> in the future. Um, but until that happens, you're going to still have the need for, for the stuff that people are, are doing today that LLMs can't do. That's a great point, Jordan. And how, how would you encourage people to think about that, right? Like, 
maybe give like some scenarios of uh, what is a workload or what is an activity where uh, it it doesn't make sense for a data science team to develop anymore now that generatives uh, out there, you know, maybe something like code generation or something like that. But um, there may be other scenarios where generative AI will never actually be a functional substitute for um, developing features, developing a model, and maybe that's all based on the data that's being utilized. But, you know, love to give your feedback as if you were, you know, instructing somebody who's trying to navigate um, a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Um, so I think I think right now we're in a situation. I was thinking about this the other day, actually, as I was talking to um, a friend about this. Like if you're someone who's been doing a lot of NLP work in the last decade or so, because like NLP is, I think, one field where prior to all this LLM stuff, we had, uh, you know, like one set of tooling that was like tokenizing uh, tokenizing words and like other things like that. And you had like various approaches uh, in that field. And there are a number of like different like companies who have built products around like that type of, of user persona. And to me, like those are like the ones that are most immediately at risk, which is just like, oh, okay, well, like, yeah, sure. You could do that now if you want to, but like, it's so much more work and it's so much less payoff than just like going and like using an off the shelf LLM or even like building your own LLM um, that, you know, I think a lot of those older techniques are going to very quickly fall out of favor. And we've seen that with like other things in machine lear learning too. Like, you know, over time techniques and tools evolve and older techniques and tools kind of fall by the wayside. Um, you know, what are things that are like, quote unquote, safe? Um, you know, anything right now that require that like requires you to make decisions on limited amount of data, I think is probably not super well suited for these like LM techniques. I mean, if you look at how these things work, like you go and you give it a ton of data and it learns, it uses like complex, you know, math and algorithms to figure out relationships on that data. And then it tries to give you the best answers to your queries um, from what it's learned, right? So if you have a limited amount of data or, or something like that, then, you know, that is still something that, you know, machine learning might be better at, or even like kind of pre-machine learning statistics, uh, statistical approaches can actually be, be be better. And this is something I think is also like understated <laughs> in a lot of machine learning work, which is like some, so for some problems, you don't have a lot of data and machine learning in general requires like a decent amount of data to learn the relationships. And there are sometimes mm, statistical models you can use, which are just like plug and play, like, you know, the model does what the model does. It's you input your data in and it'll give you like results out. Um, and that can be more useful if you have smaller amounts of data. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a good question. It's it's hard to say for certainty, like what's going to exist or not exist in a couple of years time. But um, one way that I like to think about it is I haven't yet really seen this like new breed of AI do human hard tasks. Um, most of the things that it does are like relatively simple for humans to do. Um, so like ChatGPT is very impressive, but like what is ChatGPT doing? It's responding to text, right? So like you ask it something, it gives you a response. Um, 
I could go outside and talk to like any number of humans and ask them something and I will get a response back. You know, how correct that is will vary just like, you know, the LLM will also vary. Sometimes it's very accurate. Sometimes it's not accurate. Um, similarly, like we have this like text to image stuff like Dali. Um, and again, like I could go out and talk to any human and be like, draw me a picture of a cat. Draw me a picture of a cat on the moon. Draw me a picture of a cat on the moon in a rocket ship. And like they can draw it and like some of those will be very good and some of those will not be very good. Um, but these are all things that are like relatively easy for humans to like understand the task and do it um, versus, you know, there's a lot of like human hard tasks out there. Um, the one that is, I think, probably the biggest counter argument to that is like LMs are pretty good at writing code. Um um, and I, that is kind of like with an asterisk, because I think depending on who you talk to, some people say LNs are terrible at writing code and some people say, hey, they're pretty good at writing code. Um, so it's like a, other things like you go talk to a human. Most humans don't know how to write code. Some humans suck at writing code. Some humans are great at writing code. Um, the portions of the LLM that write code, they've been trained on like GitHub data and Stack Overflow and stuff like that. Um, so they're using, you know, fairly good sources of data. They're not always accurate. Um, I usually, from my own personal experience, find them to be like 80% good. So like you need a task, they kind of get you in the right direction. And then you have to know what you're doing to finish the task. Um, but in general, like I haven't seen a lot of like human hard task be done by this type of AI. Um, and so like that is something I actually wrote a blog about this about a year ago. Um, and I was speculating that like the next wave of innovation will be in systems that are able to do human hard tasks. So I would consider like most of what we do in data human hard, right? If I go to your average person and I say like, build us a sales forecast using this data, um, you know, most people would have no idea what to do, right? Like a very, very small fraction of the population would have any kind of intelligible response to that. Um, and I think, you know, we, we you do see in the research some people working on this type of thing where like, um, I actually like to call these like LDMs, large data models, where they're models that you could just give data to and ask questions about it. Um, so I think like over time, we'll see these are pretty sophisticated. But like in the future, I imagine a world where, um, you know, instead of explicitly going and like building a PyTorch model or building a scikit-learn model or an XGBoost model or any of that, like instead of maintaining that process, maintaining versions of those models and outputs of those models and everything, you'll just connect an AI to your data, wherever it is, and just start asking it questions. So you could just connect it and say like, hey, like, you know, what customers are most likely to churn in a year? Like, what are, you know, what is the behavior in our network that is an anomaly and we should check out? And it'll just know how to build the right models, how to optimize that problem, give you the results without you dealing. Like right now, people who work in machine learning, we're stuck in that middle of like doing the details. And I think um, what we've seen by like, not the LLMs themselves, but kind of like the experience of using the LLMs, that if we can take that experience and apply it to like data problems in general, I think that is kind of the next level of all this stuff. So yes, Jordan, I think uh, it's interesting you mentioned this human heart problems. And there is, in fact, I know this for a fact, there's a lot of research going on right now around uh, reasoning and planning, which is another type of human heart problems that you mentioned. I would say, though, that um, I do I do see a different type of value than, than the one you mentioned with with GPT-4 and maybe Gemini AI that came out yesterday uh, in terms of um, the ability to do simpler tasks 
but tasks that I don't know how to do and I may never know how to do because the knowledge of it exists maybe geographically very far away from me or in a way that I don't have anybody outside my house to go and ask, right? So for example, even in coding, if I've never coded in, I don't know, Haskell or some other language or maybe I, I don't know, I can really quickly go and get some basic stuff done with ChatGPT very, very efficiently and usually very correctly. Um, and similarly, if I ask about something that I don't have any knowledge of, I think it'll give me a pretty good basic answer. Um, uh, so I think that's, that's valuable. I just wanted to make that comment. I feel a little bit differently uh, than you about that. Yeah, I mean, I I actually, I would agree that's valuable. And I'm not saying like the human easy stuff isn't valuable. It's a very, it has incredible value to a lot of people. Um, I don't know, I guess like, you know, if you look at it more from like an economic standpoint, I don't know how much like business value that has, right? Because like, you know, you, you can use an LLM and you can say like, oh, I don't know how to code in C. Let me ask it to do the simple thing in C that I need for this project. And like, you know, it'll probably give you something close and then you can tweak it and use it. Um, but you could probably ask that same question to Stack Overflow or you could like do a search in GitHub and find the same thing. Um, and you could get help that way. And, you know, there's a lot of things that like, you, you know, I've seen some demos about like, hey, well, like you can, you can show it video and it can like tell you how to do stuff or like it can identify like, you know, part of an engine that needs to be replaced or something or how to do a specific task. Like, you you know, YouTube has existed for a long time. I use YouTube all the time to do stuff around the house that I have no idea how to do. But I'm like, I bet someone has made a video about like how to fix my heater. Uh, and, you know, you do a search and you find it. And so, you know, a lot of this information is out there already. So like, I don't know. Like, if you can get it for free already, like, how much are you going to pay for it, right? Um, I think the human hard stuff gets into an area of, like, I don't know how to do it. I can't readily get this result either. So I'm now in this territory of, like, okay, this is something people will shell out money for. Totally agree. This is going to be more valuable once we get it. And it'll be soon. It'll probably be in the next year or two. But I find value also today in the speed of getting the answer. So going to Stack Overflow, Googling, and going through 100, 100 results and judging which one is actually correct is where it saves me money. But anyway, I, I think we're in total agreement on that one. <laughs> we're in like 98% agreement probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're correct. I will not buy a child's car seat unless the YouTube video exists on how to install it because... Uh, that's about as far as I'm going to go. I'm not going to read a, an owner's manual or anything. So for those tasks, I can imagine being large, largely helpful. You know, uh, Jordan, you've got me thinking um, about you know, kind of our previous conversations with data science leaders. And it was almost like in the, the previous world of exploratory data science or, or ML, you know, there would be a you know, definition of features and feature engineering, and you'd have to kind of get in the domain space to do that. And if we created a model and the model was inaccurate, it was large, it, you know, then the, the reasons came out. Oh, well, the data set we trained it on was not a great data set or it wasn't empirical enough or there was bias in the data set that we that we used to do it. Now we're in the world of LLMs. And when an LLM makes a mistake or is inaccurate, it's hallucinating. Right. So, you know, and that hallucination actually may be due to bad data that the LLM was trained on. So I'm curious if you feel like is it the same problem or is it a vastly different problem? 
I would say it's like similar in impact, but like the technical details behind the scenes are different. Um, yeah, I mean, there's been a decent amount of research showing that you can get better results from LLMs if you use smaller training sets, right? So, I mean, there's a couple of different problems people are trying to create, right? Like, you know, ChatGPT, like call of a lot of the the hyperscalers who are who are putting out like public models for for people to interact with, their goal is really to like impress people and to have like a general. They're trying to get to like you know, a general model that can be used to answer as much as possible. So, you know, you have to train it on more data because it can then talk about more things. Um, uh, is, most of them are not doing like any real time uh, lookup, which is something you could do, but they're, I think most of them are, are not. Um, so you're training them on large amounts of data, which means there's more ways for them to kind of like cross the wires behind the scenes and give a weird response. And if you've used any of these uh, systems for more than like a day or two, you probably have come across like a weird conversation. When I first started doing it, I had posted some of mine on Twitter and I thought they were funny, but you know, now there's like millions of them and they're not funny anymore. Um, so I, I think it's, it's, there's, there's similar types of things, but there's also a lot of unique challenges to these systems as well that we didn't have in the classical world. So, um, you know, for example, there are a number of people I've seen who have done like interesting things to like hack these models, right? So you don't you don't really know what people are going to ask, so it's hard to anticipate the types of information you're going to get out of these things. But you know, especially if if you're a customer doing something like fine tuning of models, and you're like giving it your customer information or something to be able to like better service whatever it's doing, like customer support or whatever. Uh, it's actually possible in a lot of cases for you to get that model to tell you what the training data was and like what is the information that it knows about, which could contain sensitive information, it could contain addresses, you know, ages, social security numbers, whatever. Hopefully you're not putting that into it, but uh, it's just there's a lot of different things to think about as you start using these systems that like we weren't considering before. Yeah, Jordan, and glad you brought up the aspect of fine tuning, which may lead us to our, our final question here. Um, you know, interested uh, is your kind of background, um, both being an ML engineer and, and really being so close to ML engineers as a as a position and a persona, you know, we often talk about two techniques on this show for finding a model, uh, maybe even sometimes making it domain specific, which is this idea of, of fine tuning the model um, or approaching it through a, a retrieval augmented generation or a rag type of uh, exercise. And uh, Lord knows we've seen some differing opinions here on the podcast. But curious to what you see are the advantages and disadvantages of uh, both those approaches, both the retrieval augmented generation and fine tuning approach to uh, get the model to behave in the, the way that we want it to. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would probably have less skin in the game on this than some of your other guests. Um, you know, I kind of from reading the tea leaves, it seems like the the community as a whole is kind of moving more towards the RAG approach. Um, I think the RAG approach is maybe seen as better because, you know, you're providing more context at runtime, which means you don't have to worry about like retraining models. You can use models that, that are like off the shelf, um, which means like it's less 
you know, in a way, uh, it's probably less effort to you to build and maintain these systems than the fine tuning. And the fine tuning, depending on how much data you're giving and what you're trying to do, like could require that you need like a lot of GPUs and like other things, which may not be readily available uh, to some companies. Um, so RAG might be easier to get into. Um, I think it could potentially have more security risks because you don't know what data people are trying to give the model. Um, and I don't know, like you could give it data and then do I know about that data for my next session, right? Like maybe I then go in and ask it some stuff and it gives me back some information that you gave me that I shouldn't know about. Like, yeah, there's kind of weird, a couple like weird things like that. So I'm always really interested in like the security aspect of these things because I feel like people get excited by things. They start building out stuff and then like no one thinks about security until later. Um, and then the security aspect is usually like make or break for a lot of companies. Like, Hey, like we can't, we can't do anything risky. Um, so I think that's, that's important. Um, another thing to consider, I think in this is like, are either of these long-term solutions, um, like, will anybody be doing fine tuning or rag in like, you know, two, three, five years, even, I don't know, six months, a year, who knows? Um, you know, the, the goal of a lot of these companies is to build artificial general intelligence, right? So, like, if you can build a system that actually uh, thinks and reasons like humans do, which all these systems today do not, uh, we should all be clear about that, they do not reason and think like humans do. But if you can build a system that does that, um, you know, these approaches might be antiquated, right? You may just favor using an AGI on top of all this stuff, which can actually produce like better, safer results. Yeah, thank you for that, Jordan, and uh, really enjoyed the conversation today. I guess let's close out with uh, what's exciting and upcoming for your open source project for you personally. Um, let our listeners know a little bit about what, what's coming from, from your camp. Yeah, so we're still early, early days in Lolpop. I think it's an exciting project. Um, you know, we're looking for contrib for con contributors. So if you are in the ecosystem and you're interested in getting involved in an open source project, this is, I think, a great one to do it. Um, we're going to be releasing our next release pretty soon. So like by the time this airs, uh, probably there will be a new release of Lolpop out. Um, yeah, we're really just focused on building out a good framework for everyone to use. So there's been a lot of core work that is being done in this release. And then the next release, we're um, eyeing building out a lot of integrations for LLM use cases. So if you are someone who's working on LLM stuff, um, and I, I think this is like a big need right now because what I see like reading various blogs on LLMs is like, it's still very much for a lot of people in that exploratory phase. And I think uh, a number of people are like, well, how do you actually like productionalize some of this stuff? Um, so you know, we're going to be taking a crack at that in the next few months and releasing some integrations into that in the old pop. So, um, you know, keep your eyes, uh, your eyes open if you're interested in any of that. Well, I'm excited to form everybody that if you'd like to find out more about Lolpop, Jordan's project, and hear more from Ofer, they will both be speaking at Data Council 24 um, in late March in Austin, Texas. So we hope that you can join us for that um, and you can get a, a couple of key updates from the team here. Uh, so with that, Jordan, thank you for your time today. As always, thank you to my guest, Ofer, uh, for all the insightful questions. We're wrapping up this year here at the podcast, but we're really excited to join you back next year, where we will continue to provide you a monthly installment of these great conversations with people who are at the forefront of AI and ML development. So thank you all for your time today, and we will see you in 2024.